The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We've been looking for a number of weeks at what God would instruct about the faith of this great man Abraham in the Old Testament, how it is a pattern for our faith. He is put up as the model of faith, asked to believe some tremendous hard things. Nothing harder than what God puts before him now as we come for the ninth time on this subject, and there'll be one more week to look at this. Genesis 22 is our text today. I'm also going to read just a couple verses from John chapter 8. But Genesis 22, the first 14 verses, listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood upon it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. John chapter 8, Jesus is the spokesman. He's in controversy and conflict with Jewish leadership who claimed that their 
great credential was that they were Abraham's sons. Jesus said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. This is the Word of God. Do we love and trust God primarily for tangible blessings He provides us in this life? Or can we trust Him purely for Himself because of who He is? I ask myself, what if things that I prized most, like my wife or any of my children or grandchild, or the physical ability to go on being pastor to a congregation that I love to serve, literally taking away from me the purpose of my life. What if I lost any of those precious things and had to suddenly see them stripped away or even voluntarily give them up? I reflected on this about a month ago when I heard news that a man I've known slightly as an acquaintance, a fellow minister in our denomination, had had a bicycle accident, my age exactly. I don't know precisely what happened, but he was hit by a car riding a bike. And the result, the diagnosis is the worst. Quadriplegia, paralyzed from the neck down. At the age of 61, you wonder, what are his days going to be like? Certainly it must seem like all the sweetness is gone from life. He's given up just about everything that a man could enjoy. And yet this man, I believe in his faith, would join us in testifying that God is sovereign in all events of life. But now instead of just testifying to that, he has to live that and live it in terms of deprivation and suffering every single day. And again, I ask the question, do we love and trust God for the tangible blessings He puts in our way and provides to us, or might we trust Him purely for Himself because of who He is? This is exactly what Genesis 22 deals with. It's one of the Bible's premier dramas. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a legend. It doesn't come from some other culture adopted and pasted into the Bible. It's a real event. It happened to a real man. One writer skeptically said about this, as long as we see what is said here, Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac, his son, at God's command, I must conclude, this man said, God is a monster and Abraham is probably insane. Well, that's a skeptic's way of seeing this text. But if we would look deeper, and if we would understand this against the backdrop of everything God has been teaching up until now, what we see before us is not a text about the cruelty of God at all, but about the depth of the love of our God. 
God tested Abraham, we're told here in verse 1. Back in my elementary school days in the 50s and first couple years of the 60s, I remember we had air raid drills regularly along with fire drills. There was a bell for a fire drill, but a siren for an air raid drill. I think somewhere along the way, the school decided that the siren was scary. And either kids or teachers would think the Russians have come for sure or what. They decided to precede the siren by the principal coming on the PA system and saying, now this is going to be a test of our emergency warning system. And then the siren. So you knew it was a test. It was a drill. You dove under the desk. You sat under there as I did, wondering what a desk would do to hold off a nuclear bomb anyway. But there you were under the desk knowing it's only a test. It's only a drill. Genesis 22.1 says God tested Abraham. A test is something hard. A test pushes you out to the margins of your ability. A test comes in ways that you often don't know it's a drill, and we realize that Abraham didn't know that. We do, readers of this. We say, oh, well, we can read and jump to the end of the story and know that the knife isn't really going to harm Isaac. God will stop it. But Abraham didn't know that. God didn't say this is only a drill. You're only going through the motions. He said, I want you to do something very hard. And the man of God did it with unquestioning faith. Here's a story about loving and trusting God to the ultimate degree, not for the gifts He provides you with, but for Himself, because He's worthy of it. Now, in the first place, Genesis 22 introduces what I call Abraham in Gethsemane. Jesus, you know, on the way to the cross, went to that garden of Gethsemane where he agonized about what was about to happen. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, the gospel says. He asked his father if there was some other way. And you say, well, I don't see a similarity to that here. Abraham's not sweating. He's not praying. He's not asking for another way. But let me tell you, what do you think this, on this Father's Day, what do you think the mindset of this father was for three days going towards a destination that he knew meant the death of his son? He certainly was wondering, what is God going to do here? How did God speak? How did God make it known that He should do that? We've, met, we've asked that several times in, in texts preceding this as we say, how did God speak to Abraham? It wasn't necessarily a voice that He heard. It wasn't on a written page. Somehow the Lord made things very clear to him. A deep urging, a deep sense of, of something by the Holy Spirit telling him he should do it. You can believe he would not have done this thing if he wasn't sure that this was God saying, take your only son whom you love and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Think what that meant. It was clear. It meant a sharp knife, an altar of stone, a bundle of wood, a son's throat cut, and a body burned. There wasn't any question that that's what God's will was being expressed here. How's that for a Father's Day dilemma? 
Abraham had fathered two sons. Sarah said, get rid of Ishmael. One was gone, not dead, but gone from his tent. And now God said, get rid of Isaac. And yet if he trusted God and followed the promise God had made that you're going to be father of a great nation that's going to be blessed in every possible way, there wasn't any way that promise could be fulfilled if Isaac was to die. Now, there are people who try to explain this by saying, well, what Abram was being asked to do was at least culturally familiar. There were indeed Canaanite peoples around uh, him living probably within his knowledge who sacrificed children. The god Molech is seen in the Old Testament as a god that, that desired the bodies of children offered to him. The Word of God later on in the law absolutely abhors and prohibits that. It's not something that would give God any pleasure. Abraham knew his God. He knew he wasn't this vicious, child-devouring God. Why would he think God would want him to do this? Well, there's a sense in which we have to say he didn't know why. But he only saw later on at the end when the Lord said, Now I know that you fear me because you didn't withhold your son. The Lord asked him to do something that the Lord knew would not result in Isaac's death. But Abraham didn't know it. And he had to be willing to trust the revelation of God without reserve and without holding back, even in this seemingly absurd almost impossible thing, and so I call it his Gethsemane. Not because the text tells us he objected or asked for another opinion or prayed it over. It doesn't say anything about what he felt or what he anguished or anything. It's, it's silent as far as the internal response of Abraham. We only have his outward response. He packed up and did what God said. And I'm just as astounded by Abraham's swift obedience to the Lord as I am by God's request here. He took a three-day journey to a place called Mount Moriah, which I might add as a footnote, we know is the exact place where the temple of Jerusalem was later built, but that's another story. And on that three-day journey, he had to say, all I know is that my God has proved faithful Every time in the past, I cannot comprehend what's going on here. I cannot comprehend what God is going to do. But I know my God. And I know how faithful He is. And I must trust Him. And yet there was anguish. And the anguish is sounded out by the phrase, your son, your only son whom you love. Well, if this was Abraham in Gethsemane, then we see verses 3 and following as Abraham approaches Calvary. He approaches the pinnacle, the place where the death would occur, still wondering what is God going to do. And the commentators make a great deal out of verse 5, what Abraham says there to his servants. You wonder what he said to Sarah, by the way, when they left the tent. No word about that. He certainly said, I'm going to worship God, and I'm taking Isaac with me. And Sarah said, sure, no problem. That was true. And now he tells his servants, you stay here. The boy and I will go over there and worship, and we will come back 
to you. Now, you have to view that one of two ways. There are many who view that and say, well, you know, even a good man has to tell a little white lie. Abraham had to deceive the servants and put them off from his real intention so they wouldn't rise up and wrestle him to the ground and say, no, my Lord, you won't do any such thing as what you've just said. Maybe you believe that's what he meant. I rather believe what the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us Abraham meant when he said that. He wasn't lying. He wasn't deceiving. Hebrews 11.19 tells us what he meant when it says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Isn't that amazing? It sounds like what we're being told as the New Testament interprets the Old, that Abraham had every expectation that he would have to cut his son's throat and kill him, but God would miraculously raise him and they would come back again and go home together. Wow. And so we come to the pinnacle climax of this text. I can't dramatize it any way that would make it more dramatic, more chilling than it already is as the old man ties up his son, who's probably at least about a teenager now. We don't know exactly how old, but he's not a little, little child ties him up, puts him on the wood, and raises the knife with every intention of bringing it down until God compellingly gets a hold of him and stops his hand. The angel of the Lord, we read, spoke to him. And so in amazement, as a third point here, we see that God provided the missing lamb. Many people talk about how passive Isaac is here. If he was a teenager, just think about it. You know, here you are. You're already wondering why there's no animal. Your father gives you the wood. You dutifully carry the wood. And now dad is tying your hands behind your back and tying your ankles and lifting you on top of the firewood. What does a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15 or 18-year-old do in those circumstances? Say, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder what he's up to. But we have not a single word of any resistance from Isaac, do we? And many would say what we have there is a picture of Jesus Christ going to his cross, bearing his cross, going to it, willingly submitting to the will of his Father. And there's not much more we can say about that. But Isaac did just in a teensy way, resist by asking a question. Father, where's the lamb? I don't understand. I've done this with you before. There's always been a lamb to be killed and sacrificed in, in praise to God. God himself will provide the lamb, my son. That was the right answer. Husbands, has your wife ever asked you for the 13th time to do something on the honey-do list? My wife wins a marvelous prize for patience for the size of the honey-do list that has not been performed. And I know I've answered her before by saying, okay, I'll see to it. The exact Hebrew translation of what Abraham said when he said God will provide it is this. God will see to it. God will see that it is provided, my son. 
If God demands a sacrifice, he will provide the sacrifice. And John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, wrote, I quote him, In such straits as this, the only remedy is to leave the event to God, allowing him to open his way for us when no way seems to be open at all. And so God, who required a sacrifice, provided a sacrifice, a ram caught in the thicket. And there is the first appearance of the biblical idea of a substitution. One death substituted for many. You see, Genesis 22 has great long-range significance. It tells us that God alone can supply whatever satisfies His requirements. If He wants a holy sacrifice to atone for sin, He must provide it. And so down through history, the same question kept on being asked. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's a sacrifice that will satisfy God? People were asking it, asking it, asking it for generations and centuries. They were still asking it one day alongside the Jordan River when a raggedy prophet who ate honey and locusts and astonished people with the power of his preaching suddenly pointed to his cousin from Nazareth and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is the Lamb. God has seen to it. The similarities between what Abraham did with his son Isaac and what God the Father did with Jesus at Calvary are not contrived. They are not a preacher's invention to try to bring together Old Testament and New. They are obviously intended by the Bible. John 8.58 had Jesus saying, Abraham saw my day. The people he was saying that to thought he was a nut. You, a man not 50 years old, Abraham saw you. What are you talking about? This is what he meant. Genesis 22. Abraham saw the day when God provided the sacrifice that he required, and that let him see in some kind of a glimpse all the way down those centuries to the cross of wood where the Father would raise his sword over me, Jesus was saying, and nobody would stop his hand from descending. Nobody would stop my death as a real death once and for all, for those who believe. You see, Genesis 22 is a great prophecy of God's intense father love for his only son, Jesus. Love that didn't just intend to sacrifice, but did sacrifice and give us a substitute to take our place. One who would be raised in power to live again for us. Now, all this has an application to us. We people who face adversity, who suffer losses, who make hard choices, God still tests the quality of our faith in life circumstances. He doesn't always warn us. It's a big test coming up the day before we get the doctor's verdict or the day before the sudden phone call out of the blue. Mom was killed. The day we sacrifice something that's very dear to us. God doesn't say, 
there's a big test coming. I want to see the quality of your faith. Do you trust me for myself or only for the things I give you? He will test us in losses of things that are precious to us, our own health, our loved ones, our financial security. He will test us in a lonely way. You know, Abraham didn't have a counselor as he went on that three-day journey. He couldn't talk to anybody about what he knew he had to do. It was an absolutely lonely sacrifice that he was called to make. And like Abraham, you might need to simply hold on and believe God is going to provide. I cannot see how. And it may not be in the way I expect. You know, somebody said the testing of a Christian's faith is like what a school does when it announces that your child is, they want to evaluate your child for the gifted and talented program, the accelerated program. In other words, they've seen in your child some evidence of real ability, and they want to see, should we put them in these enriched classes? If God is testing your faith, he's seen that you have some. And he wants to stretch it to see if it's faith that trusts primarily in himself or just in the things that he gives you. A man named J. Gresham Machen is known to many of you, perhaps not to all, He wrote a book in the early 20th century called What is Faith? Pastor DeBruin sent me this quote by an email. He just wanted me to see it. I guess he sent it to all the pastors. Two weeks ago, he sent it not knowing how relevant it was to today. I quote Machen in this short paragraph in his book. Here's what he said. If we have regarded religion merely as a means of getting things even lofty, unselfish things, when the things we have gotten from God are destroyed or lost, then our faith will fail. When loved ones are taken away, disappointment comes, or noble ambition is set at naught, we will turn away from God and say, religion failed. Machen wrote, has it never dawned on us that God is valuable for his own sake? If here and now we have the one inestimable gift, the most precious gift of God's presence and his favor, then all the rest can wait to be received in God's good time. The God who tests his people is the God who also expects to provide for his people. He has provided us with a great Redeemer in Jesus Christ. And he's going to provide us with the sustaining grace we need to walk every day trusting in him regardless of how hard it is or what the sacrifices are or the pain we feel. There's no verse of the Bible, I think, that wraps up this lesson from Genesis 22 better than Romans 8.32. There we read, He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? The God who sacrificed his Isaac on the altar of Calvary, is this a God you can trust? Is this a God you can trust? Or is this a God that you say, well, I'll walk with you as long as the goodies keep coming my way? 
Can we resign ourselves to lay on his altar anything in this present world that we deem to be precious if only we have him? And you know what we discover is is just what Abraham discovered, that most of what he says sacrifice, he wants us to let go of it, and having let go of it, we actually get it back. But anything that we don't seem to get back in this life, anything we say goodbye to, For this span of time and life, the Lord says we get back a hundred, no, a thousand times over in the kingdom of God. Anyone who has left mother, father, houses, land, all these things for my sake, the same will get them back many-fold in eternal life. This is a father we really can trust. Our Father God, we thank you that Abraham gives us a picture that points to you. We confess that we have been on again and off again with you based on how rich we seem to be in your blessings right now or how tested we are in letting go of things or giving up things that we thought were our entitlements. Teach us to trust you. Teach us that amazing trust that would load up the donkey and put on the wood and take the only son by the hand and go where you tell us. Translate that into our experience, Lord, and teach us that trust that we might glorify you and praise you all our days. Amen.